This is Invest Talk. Independent thinking, shared success. Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Tuesday, November 7th, 2023 edition. I'm Justin Klein, and I'm excited to give you a mix of educational and actual material today to help you become a better investor. And we have this format, and we love answering your questions, and we love bringing you the latest market news and and topics that are vital to your education. But there's also different formats, and we have another one coming up this Thursday, and that is our webinar, and it is the Invest Talk Wealth webinar. It's Thursday, and that means it's just two days away. And the title is Profit Amidst Chaos, Strategic Investing in a Recession. It's happening only online, but the admission is free, luckily for you, but you do have to register. We were going to talk about what the next recession might look like, what it, what connection it could have to the past recessions, and the characteristics of past recessions, what market reaction was, etc. We're going to look at different sectors that tend to outperform in these environments, as well as different asset classes that tend to tend to perform. And so the goal here is to preserve and grow your capital. Preserve and grow your capital. And that's the important part here. That latter is probably most important. Because most people think of recession, they think preserve only. But in reality, typically recessions set up the best ability for you to grow your capital. So we're going to touch on all of that. Once again, it is our new InvestTalk Wealth webinar presented this Thursday online free of charge, and you can go to investtalk.com to register now. All right, now on to the job at hand, and that is giving you useful data and my unbiased perspective with over 20 plus years of investment experience. And of course, we're going to get to the market performance today. We're going to run down some show topics, but right after our first caller question now. Hey, Justin or Steve, wanted to wish and hope that uh, Steve's doing well. Justin, wanted to ask you today about a couple of uranium and nuclear energy companies. I own CCJ and it's doing really well, so I'm kind of holding that one, but I'm specifically asking about LEU, Centrist Energy. That one hasn't done much for the amount of time that I've held it, so I'm wondering if you feel like it's a good company to hold on to, maybe sell out of it and consolidate, even though CCJ has ran up a little bit. Just wanted to know how you guys are playing the uranium nuclear energy. I know you like it. Just wondering if you're playing. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Bye. All right. Looking at LEU Centris Energy Corp. And you're correct. CCJ is the main way that we are playing the uranium trade. Uh, but there are some other smaller names. Uh, LEU Centris is not one of them. But for everyone else out there, this is a, let's see, a $850 billion market cap, 
pretty much debt-free, which is good. But what they do is they're engaged in the supply of nuclear fuel and services for the nuclear power industry. They operate through low enriched uranium and technical solutions agreements. So it's a small player, but certainly benefiting from the slow but steady rise of acknowledgement that nuclear is going to have to be the f- a large part of the future of a cleaner energy grid. Can't just rely on solar and wind, mainly because it doesn't shine all the time. It doesn't, the sun doesn't shine all the time and it doesn't, the wind doesn't blow all the time, especially in certain parts of the country and parts of the world. And so for base load power, there's pretty much nothing that's more reliable than nuclear. And so these stocks are rallying. The price of uranium continues to go up due to lack of capex in production. And LEU is benefited from that. This summer, it was trading around $28 per share. Now it's all the way up to $54 per share. So big move there. Small cap names. So not surprised that it's had a large move. But I like the technicals. Technicals are fine. The fundamentals... They're a bit all over the place. If you go look at the history of their business, it's very up and down. There's really no consistency to it. But decent value, uh, and it's a good way to play the space uh, in in a higher risk way. No dividend there, but that's fine. Um, So I have no problem with this, Centris, but know that there is the risk there of being a smaller name, uh, and certainly it's going to be at the whims of the Price of uranium, but obviously we're bullish on that space. All right, now let's uh, let's talk a bit about the market. Let's talk about a little about the market today. Just pull up the data points here. Uh, it was a decidedly positive day overall. Uh, growth certainly outperformed. You had oil down on a bit of a stronger dollar. Um, kind of commodities. Didn't have a good day. That's pretty much why value underperformed. Uh, and oil <clears throat> oil pulled back uh, pretty significantly. And uh, it's not into, and now it's into major support. I will say that, kind of the lows from August. The big question is, can it hold here? And we'll see about that. But overall, it was a modestly positive day for equity prices overall. Uh, I'm still watching what happens with the dollar. It's still well below the highs from last week. And if you can get a dollar downtrend, that's certainly be good for risk assets overall. The 10 year did perk up or come down a little bit from yesterday's perk up and closed around 4.57, still slightly up from Friday's close. So, You're seeing a lot of a lot of volatility within the rates market, and 
typically markets don't love that, right? They want to see something consistent. They want to know what the cost of capital is going to be. And when you see big moves one way or the other, especially whipsawing, that can kind of unnerve markets. Um, so we'll see where that kind of settles in now after the recent uh, Fed announcement and the Treasury refunding announcement. Obviously, those things had were big market movers last week. <clears throat> but typically, it does take a week or so for big news events like that to kind of fully filter into the market and you start to create a trend out of them. So we'll see what happens as we enter the back half of this week. All right, there are a lot of ground to cover over the next 40 minutes. Our main focus point looks in the story behind this headline. A Made in America revival has sparked a building boom and a 506% rally in value. Construction companies are benefiting as manufacturing returns to the U.S. So we'll talk about the U.S. construction industry, how that it relates to public works and U.S. manufacturing trends in 2023 and touch on Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act that is filtering into economic activity. So we're going to look at that. <clears throat> also, something I want to get to yesterday, and that is in regards to the Japanese bond market and Japanese interest rates and how that's going to feed into corporate bond markets here in the U.S. I'm going to talk about why that is. Also, when could the next corporate credit crisis commence? There's always going to be one, right? There's, there's, there's always a corporate credit crisis in the future. It's just a matter of when. And obviously, higher rates are a potential catalyst for that. But we're going to talk about whether that is likely to create some sort of major catalyst. Okay? So we're going to look at that. Uh, and then lastly, the skills gap. We know we're building, our main focus point is talking about the amount of spending on manufacturing and reshoring manufacturing, but can we? Can we? Do we have the human capital to do it? So we're going to look at that as well. We also have some voice bank questions. One is around T-bills and bonds, as well as Kelanova. Kelanova. And we're also going to go to a quick break right now. So leave your questions now at 888-99-CHART. It's happening in just two days. This Thursday, 1 p.m. Pacific time, the newest Invest Talk Wealth webinar, Profit Amidst Chaos, Strategic Investing in a Recession. The Wealth webinar will be presented online and free of charge, but you have to register in advance to reserve your spot. Which sectors tend to soar and which plummet during economic downturns? With the right strategies, you can safeguard your investments and also seize unique opportunities. So join Invest Talk hosts Justin Klein and Luke Guerrero of KPP Financial as they take you through the maze of mysteries involved with investing in times of recession. Tell your friends about the next Invest Talk Wealth Webinar. It's happening live, online, and free Thursday, November 9th. Steve Peasley and Justin Klein are ready to answer your finance and investment questions. Call Invest Talk 888 99Chart. Hey, Steve and Justin. Is there at any point where I would want to go 100%? Two bills and bonds, just for fixed income. Say a person is, you know, they have a couple million, few million. They just want that safe 
steady income. Don't need to really keep up inflation with inflation. Don't really care. Just want that, you know, X amount per month and they're good on living. Would that be a scenario where you would just go 100% to those and bonds? No stocks, nothing else? Look forward to your uh, answer. Thank you so much. Well, good question, but <clears throat> I don't know if I could ever agree with that last part, which is saying, oh, I don't care about inflation. You should always care about inflation because inflation could get out of control. I'm not saying it's going to happen anytime soon, but there's certainly that risk. But you don't say you care about inflation now, but if inflation's 20%, Think you'll care about inflation? Absolutely you will. And if you're in T-bills earning even 5% now, negative 15% annual real return is pretty bad. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen or anything like that, but just to say, just to dismiss inflation out of hand, I think is a little disingenuous. Nobody is ever going to not care about inflation. So that's really the biggest risk with T-bills t- T-balls, t- and bonds is that inflation will continue to kind of escalate and you'll be stuck in longer dated securities that don't pay enough. Now certainly T-bills and, t- and treasury bonds, your principal safe, and you're going to get that yield, and maybe that's okay with you, and maybe you have other sources of maybe inflation protection. Maybe you have Social Security, for example, that's COLA adjusted. Maybe you have an annuity or something like that that adjusts for inflation, etc. But I think your general <clears throat> question probably has more to do with the amount of risk you should take. And there is a level, I think, for most people, <clears throat> once they amass a certain amount of capital that allows them to quote unquote retire or be financially free, that they should lower their risk substantially, even if their ability or their willingness to take a lot of risk is a lot higher. I've seen that many times. Oh, I'm, I'm a risky investor. Uh, maybe they're entrepreneurs or whatever. They just tend to be riskier and uh, they're okay being in all equities. But in reality, based on their amount they've massed, they probably don't need to be all in equities. So that's the way to think about it. Uh, And lowering risk can mean different things. Uh, It can mean just corporate bonds instead of treasuries. It could be uh, floating rate bonds that will help hedge against inflation. It could be maybe buying some gold as an uncorrelated asset. Maybe that's running a cover call strategy on your equity slice. There's a lot of things that can lower your overall risk profile. And there is a level for everybody where they have enough money, enough money where they can certainly uh, lower that risk a lot more than they are uh, to the point from the point where they're willing to take risk. Okay. All right. Carl from Oceanside, hang on. You will be next. We're going to a quick break. Please remember that you can call anytime and leave your questions on the Invest Talk Voice Bank. If you're listening via our live stream or on AM 1220 radio in the Silicon Valley area, you can call right now at 888 chart
one of the most rewarding things I do each weekday is host the Invest Talk podcast. I truly enjoy helping investors, and I know that every question counts and every answer I provide will be unbiased. You, the caller, get to chart the course for each Invest Talk podcast. Call with your questions anytime, day or night, 888 99Chart. Let's go to Carl in Oceanside looking at E. F.R. Eaton Vance, floating rate fund. You own it or looking to buy it? Yes. Uh, I'm wondering how does it work and what is it? What is it and how does it work? It pays a 10% yield. Is this quarterly or annually? Well, I believe, let me see here. It's performance. <clears throat> Usually these closed-end funds... I believe it's a closed-end fund. They usually pay monthly. Let me look at the distributions here. Yeah, so they pay out monthly. And these are floating... This is a floating rate fund. So <clears throat> floating rate funds, there's they are better hedges against inflation than fixed income securities, meaning the amount that you're getting paid is, is static. And these floating rate funds or floating rate assets goes up as interest rates go up. And there's uh, every security is a bit different. So you have to kind of look at each individual one, but an aggregate, obviously higher rates means higher payout for this fund. Now, the negative for this is that the average credit rating for, for this fund is B plus. And that's where the category average is as well. So it's not far off from, from there. It's, it's in line. And your B plus is very low rated, right? This is junk. These are junk bonds. And so mm -hmm. your biggest worry here is a major default cycle. And you actually don't want rates to go up that much because remember, these companies have to pay it. It's coming from somewhere. It's coming from the companies. And eventually, that creates a default. If, it, if, the, if their interest expense eats up the cash flow of the business. And you don't want that either. So there's kind of a happy medium here. And you don't want a major credit event. Meaning yield spreads widening out dramatically. So... Right now it's doing fine because interest rates are going up and you're not getting a major credit event. So right now it's kind of the best of both worlds. But that's right now. What does the corporate bond market look like a year from now, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. But, you know, I would say between now and the end of the decade, you're probably going to get some sort of default cycle. And these are the type of names in this portfolio, this is the Eaton Vance Senior Floating Rate Closed-End Fund, that will, <clears throat> these, this is the type of fund that will be hurt dramatically in that situation. And on top of that, it's operating with leverage. That's how you're getting that 10%. So you're chasing yield here in a big way. <clears throat> and if you look back in history, you'll see that in major periods where the credit spreads widen out, this falls dramatically. So in 08, it peaked out in mid-2007, right around $20 per share. And it went as low as $6 and change in the depths of the crisis. 
During the COVID crisis, it started off the crisis around 13 and change, and it bottomed out around 7 and change. So about 50% drop there. So once again, this is more about a potential credit crisis, and it has leverage, right? If you have defaults and you have losses on position and you have leverage, it can be a double whammy. And that's why you have the price of these falling. So you have to have the view that the credit markets are not going to have a major event and that interest rates will continue to rise. I'm in the view that, at least in the near term, rates are probably peaked. Maybe we get a pullback, maybe get a retest of the 5% level in the 10-year between now and, let's say, the second half of next year. I think that's certainly possible as well. But I don't think we're going much higher in this cycle on interest rates. So that's kind of how it works, what the risks are. And I guess you'll be the judge of whether you want to take those particular risks. All right. My main focus point today looks in the story behind this headline. A made in USA revival has sparked a building boom and a 506% rally in value. And this is all about the US construction industry, public works and US manufacturing trends of 2023. And the September construction data came out. And it shows that while there has been a major boom in construction spending, that has faded a bit. The Commerce Department said Wednesday that construction spending rose 0.4% after, and that's from a revised data to show construction spending surged 1% in August, that before it was reported at only 0.5%. So the number was in line, but the revisions, unlike the jobs number revisions, this revision was actually higher. And year-over-year construction spending was up 8.7% in September. Spending on private construction rose 0.4% after being up 1% uh, in August, like I said. Non-residential structures like factories edged up only 0.1% month over month. Spending on manufacturing construction projects in general fell 0.4% month over month. And investment in residential construction increased 0.6% after rising 1.3% in August. And mainly this is on single-family construction. And this is obviously going to help the housing market kind of balance out supply and demand here. What's where there's going to be way too much supply is actually not in the single family homes. It's going to be apartments. Multi family housing construction is under pressure, mainly because of rising rental vacancy rates at a two and a half year high and an oversupply of these apartments. So that's kind of the rundown of the latest construction spending report. All right, we're going to break. I'm ready for your questions now at 888 chart. At this point, I think almost everyone has heard how generative AI promises to bring us to the next industrial revolution. AI is already shaping society with an impact on daily life that echoes the transformative significance of electricity or the internet. As we take steps to embrace the potential of generative AI, we need to remain vigilant with regard to its exploitability. This is where HackerOne comes in. HackerOne's AI Red Team addresses the novel challenges of AI safety and security for businesses that are launching new AI deployments. The HackerOne approach involves targeted offensive testing by harnessing the collective skills of ethical hackers who are proficient in AI and prompt hacking. In short, AI red teaming is the practice of stress testing AI models and deployments to make sure they can't be tricked into providing information beyond their intended use. 
and that security flaws can't be exploited to access confidential data or systems. HackerOne seamlessly integrates with your existing tools to enhance communication and collaboration across development, security, and IT teams. So, stay ahead of the game in the battle against cyber threats with HackerOne's attack resistance platform. Learn more at HackerOne.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-R-O-N-E.com, HackerOne.com. It's happening in just two days. This Thursday, 1 p.m. Pacific Time, the newest Invest Talk Wealth Webinar Profit Amidst Chaos Strategic Investing in a Recession. The Wealth Webinar will be presented online and free of charge. Go to investtalk.com and register now. Hey, it's Stephen Justin. This is Art from Tucson again. I recently called in about Tyson Food, TSN. Based on what Justin said, it doesn't look like it's going to bounce back anytime soon. Thinking about selling it as a tax loss harvest and rolling the remaining proceeds over into a different food company. These uh, prepared food companies seem to be on sale, but I'd like your take because they might have underlying issues like Tyson does with margin issues with uh, higher labor costs and or input costs. But the two I'm looking about and considering investing in after selling Tyson would be um, Kellogg's, which is now uh, Kellanova, I believe it's pronounced, and that's K, way down, and also uh, Hormel Foods is the other one, H-R-L. And I'd be interested in if you think either one of these would be a good opportunity to buy now. If so, which one would be better? Or if I should stay away from both of them and just consider another sector at this time for the remaining investment. All right. I'll listen on the podcast. And as always, appreciate everything you do and uh, really value your opinions. Thank you. All right, looking at Kelanova as well as Hormel. And Hormel is obviously very similar to Tyson because they're in the meat industry. And this is also in a very strong downtrend. And under the same reasons why Tyson is under pressure as well. So, you know, unless you're just trying to gain access, keep access and exposure to the meat industry, I don't see any reason to really own this because of those that margin compression. And they do have some debt, but nothing too crazy to, to worry about in my mind. Times interest earned is 27 times, so I don't think that's really an issue. Kellanova, that one obviously is, if you're talking about Kellogg, it's more of the packaged food side of the business. They spun off the cereal business and... I forget the new symbol of Kellogg, but this is basically the snacking arm of, of Kellogg. So Pringles, Cheez-Its, Rice Krispie Treats, Pop-Tarts, Eggos, Nutri-Grain, Morningstar Farms. So a little bit of meat in there as well. But <clears throat> this is all about snacking. And they do have a decent amount of debt in their balance sheets. And once again, it is... Let's look at its margins. Margins are actually pretty steady. Fine with that. Its chart is terrible, <laughs> just like Hormel's is. They're both in a downtrend, 
And, you know, I think the question here for Kalanova is more, is this a Ozempic play, right? The fact that it's on a downtrend because of Ozempic, but obviously more and more things come out about the harmful effects of Ozempic and, and long-term downstream effects and makes it pretty limited f- f- solution for most people who want to avoid these big problems that it's causing. And I do think there is a potential play here for the names that are beaten down because of Ozempic, because I do think Ozempic is a fad. So Kellogg would be on the list, but with the technical so bad, why jump on now? Just looks like it's going lower. So of the three that you mentioned, Kellogg is probably the one that's the most interesting. But it would continue to be on the watch list. I would not buy it now because technicals are saying that it's likely headed lower. So, yeah, I just pass on all three. I think you have better options at this time within different sectors. I'd be looking at other sectors. All right, let's touch on the corporate bond market. And this is very important because, remember, there's what is called the capital structure. And when you're an equity holder... You actually sit, a common equity holder, you sit at the what it's called the bottom of the capital structure. Meaning if there's a bankruptcy, if there's any problems, uh, then you get nothing pretty much. Sometimes you get a little bit of what's left over, but very rarely. Who's at the top of that capital structure? Senior bondholders. And so if there's ever problems in the bond market, corporate bond market that filters into the equity markets because suddenly equity is worth a lot less. And so it's very important to watch this. Okay. Now, a lot of people have been talking about the maturity wall that's coming due within the corporate bond market, but in reality, it doesn't actually hit for a while. The junk and leveraged loan market totals about $3 trillion. And between na- this year and next year, you're talking about a hundred, uh, sorry, one, sorry, yeah, hundred and fifty billion dollars coming due of the three trillion. That's not that much. Five percent of the market, not that much. Okay. Now it does ramp up to about two hundred fifty billion in 2025, and then about four hundred billion. <clears throat> In 2026, 450 billion in 2027. And the real big year is actually 2028, nearly $700 billion. So you're talking about over 20% of the market that year. So really, the crunch doesn't happen until 2026 and later. And typically, that is where the credit event could happen, but it's unlikely to happen. I think near term for multiple reasons, especially because there's economic growth, not just even if there is a recession next year, it's likely to be an inflationary recession. Remember recessions are, are calculated by real economic growth. So you can have positive nominal economic growth, but you subtract inflation that goes negative, And suddenly you have a negative two quarters in a row of GDP, real GDP growth. And suddenly that's a recession. But if you have positive nominal growth, that means there's still plenty of economic activity happening in the market and at higher prices, higher transactions, and it makes it easier for these companies to repay their debts. 
because you're still earning positive margins. Now, every episode, virtually every episode of rising defaults in the high-yield market happens during a recession or plunging oil prices. Obviously, oil prices, they pulled back recently, but they're still in an uptrend. So that doesn't seem like a, a reason for there to be a major default cycle. But where there is likely to increasingly be a problem is actually in the private markets. Okay, And if you look at the data... In the first three quarters of this year, distressed exchanges basically means workouts for faltering companies. Roughly two thirds of all corporate family uh, uh, of all corporate family uh, family defaults in the U.S. were in in private equity owned companies. So private equity is actually where the problems lie, and the fact that private equity has gotten so large, it's actually made public debt markets safer, because if companies wanted to borrow money at advantageous terms before their only mar- only main market to raise a lot of money was in the public markets. Now they've moved to the private markets and that means there's less protection for private equity backers, for example. And research has actually shown that what's interesting is private equity leverage buyouts underperform broader benchmarks, public benchmarks. And it gets worse when they are the bigger, more experienced private equity backers. So if you own a private fund, a private debt fund that happens a lot with wealthier individuals who have their accounts at you know, the Morgans and the Merrills of the world and are being sold these quote unquote safer assets yielding a higher returns, but in reality, they're not really marked to market. There's a lot of chicanery going on behind the scenes, uh, but in reality, they've taken higher risk. And so, yeah, I, I, I think it's uh, very interesting to see that, that you're going to find safer businesses, safer uh, borrowing in the public markets. And I don't think we're headed for a default credit event, major credit event uh, in the next, uh, I would say, 12 to, to 18 months, but could be wrong. All right. When people take the time to leave an Invest Talk podcast review on iTunes, we'd like to thank them for the courtesy by getting to their questions quickly. Everyday Listener says, I came across this podcast in 2016 as a new investor, and it's been very helpful over the years. What are your thoughts on TSLY and other yield max option ETFs? TSLY is down with the Tesla, with Tesla right now and looks like a buy. Apple, NVIDIA, Facebook, Amazon, AMD all have a yield max ETF. Which one is better of the group? Well, with any covered call strategy, that's basically what this is. TSLY is <clears throat> simply an ETF that buys... Tesla and sells call options. So it's a covered call strategy on just te- the stock Tesla. And so it would be a safer way to play these names, right? Like you said, there are other, this is yield max Tesla options, income strategy ETF. And there's, I don't know the symbols of the other ones, but there's ones under, with Apple as the underlying NVIDIA, Facebook, Amazon, AMD. Now the positive here is that these are names that typically have what is called high implied volatility, it means the premiums for the options that they're selling tend to be pretty high. And that over time is a good thing. But, and so I would say it's better than usually owning the underlying itself. But the underlying is the most important factor by far. Because cover calls help when the market goes down or when the 
price of the stock goes down. It hedges against some downside risk, but it doesn't hedge completely. So it's always most important for any cover call strategy, and you've seen these a lot, these are very popular now. People wanting more income, but they want exposure to equities. And you know, there's ones that track different indices, the S&P, the NASDAQ, et cetera. There's even a JP Morgan one that's pretty popular uh, that's okay. But at the end of the day, there's still risk to them. And a covered call strategy doesn't make up for bad equity exposure. So if Amazon is headed down, it doesn't matter whether you sell call option on them, right? Uh, let's see. What's a good example? I'm just trying to look up some of these other ones. Disney. Yeah, there's a Disney one. Okay. Obviously, Disney has been in a huge downtrend. <clears throat> and if you look at the chart here. Oh, actually, just this was a bad example because it just came out in August. That's interesting. I have to find ones and see how far back they go. Uh, but I think this is more of a, a fad in a way. And none of these appeal to me that much. I mean, the fee expense ratio is 0.99%. Guess what? You can go create your own strategy. Why can't you buy Disney, buy Tesla, and sell a cover call on it? Anyone can do that. Just get an option agreement on your account at your brokerage firm. So focus on the underlying asset, not the income that's coming in. All right, let's fit another invest talk caller question right now. Oh, I will do that next. It's happening in just two days. This Thursday, 1 p.m. Pacific Time, the newest Invest Talk Wealth Webinar Profit Amidst Chaos Strategic Investing in a Recession. The Wealth Webinar will be presented online and free of charge, but you have to register in advance to reserve your spot. Which sectors tend to soar and which plummet during economic downturns? With the right strategies, you can safeguard your investments and also seize unique opportunities. So join Invest Talk hosts Justin Klein and Luke Guerrero of KPP Financial as they take you through the maze of mysteries involved with investing in times of recession. Tell your friends about the next Invest Talk Wealth Webinar. It's happening live, online, and free Thursday, November 9th. Hi, Justin and Stephen Luke. Uh, it's Alex from the UK. I was looking at potentially moving a little bit more into Chevron um, when I get this money back. And um, obviously, it's dipped recently. I, I fortunately trimmed before the dip, and I was just wondering this recent slump, do you still see that as a good place to park some money? I do have other companies, more EMP, Civitas uh, being one of those that I think you like, but Chevron is my just very well diversified, big super mega cap name that I put money into. Thank you very much, and I look forward to the answer on the program. All right, looking at Chevron, and yeah, if you're looking for a well diversified energy name, then Chevron is is good, very good. I mean, Exxon and Chevron have they both have their, their merits as large, integrated, well-diversified energy names. 
And if you have other EMP names that will give you more exposure to the upside of the oil price, then, uh, you know, well, Chevron's at support. I will say that around this 140 level. So that's a, that's a good thing. And, you know, it's down recently because of tighter refining margins in Europe, but those tend to kind of ebb and flow. And so I wouldn't be too worried about uh, the recent drop. So it is at some pretty good support down here. All right. That was Chevron. CVX is the symbol. Now, on the next Invest Talk, we'll look into stories set up by this headline. Three big reasons exchange-traded funds went mainstream with investors. The market share of ETFs relative to that of mutual funds has swelled to almost 30%. So we're going to discuss those trends, what that means for market structure, as well as you, the investor. That story is for tomorrow, but for now, we still have some time left. It's time for you to get your calls in. I'm Justin Klein, ready to take your questions at 888-99-CHART. The stock market is volatile. It's constantly changing. So how are you positioned? Is your portfolio properly balanced or are you taking unnecessary risks? You can get guidance anytime for free if you go to investtalk.com and take the brief risk alize quiz. Hey, Stephen, Justin, this is Derek. I had a question about Chewy, ticker symbol C-H-W-Y. I'm really interested in investing in the account dog food company. This seems to be uh, you know, the most common one out there. Uh, currently, PE ratio is 53. These are sources from MarketSmith. The five-year PE range is 44 to 2300, so it's on the low end of it, obviously. Return on equity is 102%. Apparently has zero debts, and it appears to have a large support from funds. Ownership is six seven percent when it comes to funds. So I'm really interested in adding this to my long-term portfolio, but at the same time, I'm wary that the chart looks a bit messy. It's not too far from its recent lows. So I was wondering what your thoughts are about owning this long-term. Thank you. Bye. What makes you interested in buying it? That's my question. I, I know this is similar to the call yesterday about Petco, but that was always in a downtrend, and Chewy has been in downtrend since early 2021 when it peaked out uh, around $120 per share. Now it's at $21 per share. And it was losing money consistently up until 2023, until this fiscal year. It made 27 cents. Next year it's supposed to make $0.57 cents and then $0.67 cents the year after that. It's a $21 stock. So you're talking still a multiple forward-looking multiple above 30. Revenue growth is in the low teens, but that's been slowing. Yes, they have no debt. That's amazing. That's awesome. But enterprise value EBIT is 50 times. Even looking forward, it's at 23 times, which is expensive. Free cash flow is $339 million, So it's positive. And that's a record that's a record high. And they've been issuing more and more shares. Now I will say the technicals are firming up a bit over the past few weeks, but you're still in a very long-term downtrend. I just don't see any reason why you'd want to pay this high of a multiple. Price sales, uh no, price sales is not bad. That's fine. But it's not producing enough cash flow or net income to make it worthwhile. Plus, they're just issuing more shares. You're diluting you, the shareholder. So 
you know, what's interesting for me is that they are now positive. They are now cash flow positive. They have no debt. I like that. But it's still not cheap enough. Despite this decline, I'm gonna I'll pay a maybe a market premium, but somewhere in the low twenties as a multiple is probably what I would pay. So that means this needs to get into the mid teens for me to get interested in it. And it was there. So if it finds a double bottom, maybe early October, then that's where uh, from the early October lows, then I think you could find this as a buy. Um, but uh, with this recent rally, I, I probably wouldn't be jumping on it quite yet. And that was Chewy, C-H-W-Y. But interesting name in this space. All right, lastly, let's touch a bit on the potential or actually real s skills gap that is going to hold back the manufacturing renaissance that we talked about kind of at the top of the show. And right now, manufacturing workers are pretty reliant on the clean tech jobs that the Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act are basically creating. Right, Companies like Intel, Micron, Analog Devices, Taiwan Semiconductor pledged over $200 billion on 100 different projects to create tens of thousands of jobs, taking advantage of these federal subsidies. But companies are struggling to find the workers that have the know-how to operate these high-skilled factories, right? This isn't low-skilled work. This is highly refined work that needs to be done. And on September 22nd, there were 51.3% more manufacturing jobs posted on Indeed, the job-seeking site, than in February of 2020. So clearly, manufacturing jobs are in high demand. Now, postings are up across the board, about 26% since then, but you know, manufacturing jobs are outpacing basically by double. <clears throat> but we don't have the vocational skills, the programs, the training programs for this. And so if government wants to really enact industrial policy, they need to clean up our educational system so that more people are graduating with engineering degrees, with vocational degrees so that they can do specific jobs within a factory, like machining, for example. And so until that happens, I, I don't think that you're going to get a sustained increase in manufacturing jobs for a long period of time. So I think that's the next step. The government has to put industrial back in industrial policy. All right, I'm Justin Klein. This completes another Invest Talk program. Steve and I thank you for listening, and we encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads, which you can find anytime at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play, and be sure to rate and review. And remember to register for the upcoming free wealth webinar, Profit Amidst Chaos, Strategic Investing in a Recession. It's only two days away this Thursday. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. 
Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461. Steve Peasley is president and Justin Klein is chief executive officer of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial. Thank you for listening and your comments and questions are welcome on our 24-hour listener line at 888-99-CHART.